Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, October 11th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Israel claims to have regained all settlements bordering the Gaza Strip. The EU backtracks on its announcement to freeze Palestinian aid. Morocco hosts the IMF and the World Bank's annual meeting. Germany and France kick off a two-day retreat to smooth EU diplomacy. Biden is interviewed by the special counsel in the classified documents case. A man crashes his car into San Francisco's Chinese consulate. Carrie Lake is set to announce her U.S. Senate bid in Arizona. Former baseball star Steve Garvey enters California's Senate race. Hong Kong sees heavy rainfall following Typhoon Koinu. And Harvard professor Claudia Golden wins the Nobel Prize in Economics. In our top story, Israel regains control of towns near Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, the Times of Israel, the Associated Press, the UN, and the Times of Israel. Israel's military claimed Monday that its troops had regained control of all settlements bordering the Gaza Strip, reportedly attacked by Hamas fighters. On Saturday, Hamas gunmen infiltrated at least 22 towns in southern Israel, some as far as 15 miles away from the Gaza border, and reportedly took civilians and soldiers hostage. In response to the shock incursion, Israel ordered a complete siege on Gaza and cut off all the Palestinians' electricity, food, and fuel. Since Saturday's violence, over 900 people have been reported killed in Israel, while at least 600 have lost their lives in Gaza, according to regular and frequently updated information from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Bombs have since rained down on several neighborhoods in Gaza, reportedly severely damaging over 5,300 housing units and displacing more than 187,000 Palestinians, per UN reporting. Meanwhile, the Israel Defense Forces have claimed to have found the bodies of 1,500 Hamas fighters inside the country. It added that no further fighters had crossed into Israel since Monday night, but that further infiltration could still be possible. Thanks for that frightening update, Melissa. We have a pro-Israel narrative on this story from Times of Israel. The latest terror attacks were unprecedented and were an assault on Israeli sovereignty and security. As a result, the IDF is fully entitled to carry out sweeping attacks on Gaza and enforce the blockade to ensure that nothing of this magnitude ever happens again. And here's the pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. The tragic violence was incubated after decades of death and destruction imposed on Palestinians by Israel, which made Gaza into a veritable open-air prison. Israel will now impose a fierce retaliation, which will not be condemned equally, showing the deep hypocrisy of the West and creating a humanitarian cataclysm. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they predict there's a 58% chance that Hamas will lose control of Gaza before the year 2024. The EU backtracks on its Palestinian aid freeze following the Hamas attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, the Associated Press, Financial Times, Reuters, Politico, and Al Jazeera. 
Five hours after it was announced on Monday that the European Union had immediately frozen all financial support to Palestinians, the European Commission walked its position back, denying any suspension while payments of development aid are under review into whether they are being misused. Chief spokesman Eric Marmer has claimed that Hungary's European Commissioner Oliver Varhei took to social media without consulting with any other senior officials inside the executive body of the EU, blaming him for the public relations glitch. Foreign ministers from the 27 EU countries held on Tuesday an emergency meeting to try to resolve divisions within the bloc over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, with top diplomat Joseph Burrell reportedly inviting Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen and his Palestinian counterpart Rial al-Maliki. Israel-Palestine relations have historically been one of the most divisive in the bloc, according to an anonymous EU official quoted by Politico. The latest argument has been over the financial aid flows to Palestinians following the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. The EU is the biggest aid donor to Palestinians, residing in the Palestinian Authority-led West Bank and Hamas-controlled Gaza, handing out 691 million euros, or 732 million American dollars, to help pay salaries and pensions, improve health services and access to water, and provide humanitarian aid. Meanwhile, the bloc's most populous member, Germany, and its neighbor, Austria, have temporarily suspended development aid for the Palestinian areas. The countries will review all of their development projects after the Hamas offensive on Saturday. Thank you, Scott, for laying out the facts on that. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Monitor. The EU would have betrayed its own values if this botched decision hadn't been corrected by the European Commission, as aid to Palestinians in need has nothing to do with the Israel-Hamas war. Europe must refrain from punishing an entire people focusing instead on development and humanitarian assistance projects for the people of Gaza. Counter that with this pro-Israel narrative from the Washington Examiner. There are some potentially problematic elements in these European development projects, including textbooks that have an anti-Israel bias. Even though the European Commission has backtracked on suspending all payments, a review of development program activities has been announced, which is a prudent step. And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 1.4% chance that Israel will join the EU before 2050. In our next story, Morocco will hold the IMF and World Bank annual meeting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, ABC News, Euronews, Al Jazeera, Africa News, and Oxfam. A month after experiencing a deadly earthquake that killed nearly 3,000 people and caused $11.7 billion in damages, Morocco on Monday began hosting a week-long meeting of the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and World Bank. This is the first time in five decades that the world's most powerful leaders are holding their annual meeting in Africa, purportedly a response to criticism that developing nations in the continent have been underrepresented in the two financial institutions. After two postponements due to COVID, the meeting kicked off in Marrakesh, with a focus on discussing a host of challenges facing the global economy, including war, inequality, and climate change. Following the September 8th earthquake, the IMF approved a $1.3 billion loan to Morocco to help strengthen its preparedness and resilience against natural disasters. 
Though wealthier nations are reportedly reluctant to release more capital, the World Bank is expected to announce an additional $50 billion of assistance over the next 10 years and raise $100 billion through contributions from advanced economies. Amid the meeting, an Oxfam analysis has claimed that nearly 57 percent of the world's poorest countries, about 2.4 billion people, will be forced to cut public spending by $229 billion over the next five years. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an establishment critical narrative on this story from Action Aid International. Despite its statements and symbolic gestures, the IMF has spent 50 years failing Africa and other developing countries while doing little to seek sustainable reforms. The IMF believes that its loans grant it the right to essentially control the economies of African nations and impose its neoliberal economic model. The IMF has put African economies into a cycle of debt and dependence, and it must meaningfully change its policies instead of simply virtue signaling. And Business Day brings us a pro-establishment narrative. The IMF and World Bank are deeply committed to Africa's development and understand how important Africa's prosperity is to global prosperity. The two lenders have decided to hold their meeting in the continent to display how integral international cooperation is for the continent's growth. The two have also committed to increasing support for the mounting challenges facing developing nations and are creating policies to reduce the global wealth gap and bring about sustainable solutions. Man, I've always wanted to go to Morocco, Scott. It just seems like uh, such a colorful, beautiful place. I mean, I, I, whenever I think of Morocco, I think of like the like the the bizarre, like the Indiana Jones esque. You know, I know that was Cairo in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but like walking through the markets, seeing all that interesting yeah. stuff, eating interesting food, definitely wearing SPF uh, one million for me. <laughs> uh, you know, all the fun that would come along with it. Some excellent shopping. I might even open a sunblock kiosk there for all the, you know, Westerners that come visit. Yeah, I think I would probably yeah. do pretty well there. Yeah, yeah. You, po you post up a little vending machine, you know. <laughs> Ooh, you're going, right. You're saying have a, uh, a turnkey operation. I don't need to sit at that kiosk. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I you was totally at, could and then just enjoy being in Morocco and learning right, Arabic. Right, soak yeah. in the ambiance. I was at a mall. Where was I the other day? I was at the, oh, I was at the airport. And there was just a, you know, a lot of people sitting at kiosks. I don't know who's buying. I don't know who's making like major big ticket item purchases in like the hallway in between two terminals. But they're selling stuff. You know, I don't, who's buying like. You know, major fashion items. May, and this isn't even duty free. You know, it's just like I want to oh, buy yeah. a multi-thousand-dollar pair of, uh, you know, uh, a bag or piece of technology or whatever. I don't. I don't get the market there. I understand the sunblock at the uh, Moroccan bazaar, but not not this. Oh, maybe you're just not the right tax bracket, Scott. Because maybe their business model is. We sell one purse, and then we're good for five years. Because right. I, I get, like, the toys. There was a Lego vending machine I think is awesome. I think, oh. you know, every other weekend dads everywhere are happy that there's a Lego vending machine there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and also business travelers and who else. You know, lots of different kinds of dads uh, are glad that that machine is there, <laughs> and that's fine. But I think that, you know, some of the stuff I don't get. I mean, duty-free I get, you know, cartons of cigarettes, things like that. But right. I, don't, I just don't get it. But I don't get a lot of stuff. That's that's the other thing. 
Well, I, I guess that's a good point. Fair point. But, you know, it, maybe you're drawn more to the Lego machines. And uh, mm. honestly, I would be too. I think toys are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love toys. <laughs> toys are great. That's kind of why I had kids. It's like, oh, man. Yeah. yeah. That's why toys. I. That's why I have a job. I like toys. You know, I just want the, the ability to be able to trade my precious time that I have on this mortal coil for a piece of plastic that makes me happy for five seconds is that's what I'm about. That's it. That's, that's just Scott's the four year old boy at heart. Just yeah. like love it. Germany and France hold an unprecedented retreat to smooth EU diplomacy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Radio Free International, The Business Standard, MSN, and Le Monde. On Monday, the governments of France and Germany began a two-day retreat to discuss energy, industry, and defense in an attempt to reestablish relations between the two largest economies in the European Union. Other topics set to be discussed include the war in Ukraine, the transition to a carbon-neutral economy, the rise of irregular migration, and the current Middle East conflict. The two countries are also expected to begin negotiations in 2024 concerning the construction of next-generation tanks. Ahead of negotiations next year, it's believed the two nations will discuss a German-French Main Ground Combat System, or MGCS. Defense News has reported that talks for a next-generation tank project will involve Dusseldorf-based company Rheinmetall and Franco-German joint venture KNDS. Following a tour of the harbor, the two presidents will reportedly visit the Airbus plants in Finkenwerder. The aircraft manufacturer's primary location is currently the French city of Toulouse. While German Chancellor Olaf Scholz last visited France in January this year, French President Emmanuel Macron's most recent trip to Germany, before this week's summit in the city of Hamburg, was in 2022. The retreat will be concluded with a press conference set to be attended by both leaders. While Macron's team have described the talks as informal, Germany's entourage claimed that the unprecedented format of the meeting highlighted the intensity and depth of the relationship between the two states. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. Starting with Narrative A from the Atlantic Council. It is critical that the two leading member states of the European Union find common ground on a range of important issues, including energy, security, and global competitiveness. If Europe continues to move forward without a clear sense of direction, it will be less able to assert influence in global affairs. The first step in developing a cogent European response to current issues is a strong alliance between France and Germany. Narrative B comes from Politico. The Hamburg meeting should see France and Germany conclude that Europe needs to become less dependent on the U.S. and stay out of tensions between China and the U.S. over Taiwan. The EU cannot afford to get caught up in crises that it isn't directly affected by, as such meddling would prevent the bloc from achieving strategic autonomy. Europe must defend its interests rather than become a vassal for the U.S. And the nerds are at it again, this time saying there's a 1% chance that any of Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and or Germany will leave the EU before 2027. Biden is interviewed by the special counsel in the classified documents case. And here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, the Associated Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, CNN, and Breitbart. 
The White House on Monday announced that President Joe Biden was interviewed by the DOJ special counsel Robert Hur, who was investigating Biden's potential mishandling of classified documents. Biden was interviewed voluntarily at the White House over Sunday and Monday about the documents, which were found at his Delaware home and a private office and dated to his day as a senator and vice president. The White House has said that Biden, who maintains he was surprised by the discovery of the documents, has cooperated throughout Hur's investigation. Hur was appointed in January by U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Special counsels are utilized to handle sensitive cases that usually involve political figures or the government, and they have more independence to decide whether to bring charges. Her's case is continuing while former President Donald Trump faces criminal charges stemming from two investigations conducted by special counsel Jack Smith, including one related to the handling of classified documents after the end of Trump's term. Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, had also uncovered classified documents at his home. We have diametrically opposed political narratives on this story, Melissa. The Daily Wire starts us with the Republican narrative. Any hope that Biden's DOJ, even with a special counsel leading the investigation, was going to charge Biden with the same crime Smith is charging Trump with was clearly misguided. It appears that Hur's team is already leaning toward chalking Biden's document retention to carelessness, a term used when the DOJ decided not to charge Hillary Clinton for her misdeeds. Clearly, there's a double standard at play here. And here's the Democratic narrative from The New York Times. There are vast differences between the two special counsel cases. Biden has cooperated from the start, first revealing the discovery of the documents and now agreeing to speak with her. Trump, in contrast, refused to turn over the documents and continues to claim he had the right to retain them or that he had the power to declassify them. This isn't unequal justice. It's the way the system works. So I used to work for the Oakland A's baseball team and the San Jose Earthquake soccer team. And they're like oh, cool. associated. They're owned by the same uh, jerks. And um, <laughs> the... I, for a while, I still lived up in Oakland while I was working down in San Jose. So sometimes I would like ferry something in between the two places because I was driving in that direction anyway. And yeah. it allowed me to come in late to work because I had to stop in Oakland and do whatever. So like I'll do that and like, you know, buffer in some extra time, you know. And uh, but one time I had a bunch of laptops and uh, I was supposed to bring them. I drove home from San Jose to Oakland. I had a bunch of laptops in my trunk, not visible, and my car was stolen. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> all, no. the work, all the work laptops were gone. I mean, my, my car was legitimately stolen, but and I wasn't supposed – I was allowed – I didn't, like, take these things, and I was already supposed to drop them off. Like, I was supposed to drop them off the next day. But, I A, I called work and was like, I'm not coming to work. I don't have a car. And, B, all your stuff is stolen. So <laughs> – <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs> oh, and even worse, I left my cell phone. I didn't have an iPhone yet. This was in 07. So I, I didn't have an iPhone yet, but I left my regular cell phone at work. So I had to find a pay phone to call work. Oh, no. <laughs> to tell them I wasn't coming in. And also, I don't have my cell phone, and I'm not coming into work for the near future. I literally don't have a car. So, yeah, it was a, it, it was a cluster. 
It was a, it was a cluster. Man. Um, so anyway, yeah. I've been there. Trump, Biden, Hillary, Pence. I've been, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah, you can relate. You can relate. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. Documents were in my trunk. I was supposed to bring yeah. them back the, from wherever. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were super old laptops, though, even by those standards. Like, they were pretty bad laptops, so I didn't feel that bad. I don't know what they were going to do with them, but, you know, because I wasn't privy to, like, what this was. It was just take these laptops to Oakland. It's like, all right, sure, yeah. I'll do that. But, yeah, they never made they, it. And then they, they never asked me to do that ever again, and then it, later, a couple years later, I got fired. So it was awesome. <laughs> All because of that event. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it did. It definitely didn't help. You know, like, yeah. okay, you know, we can choose a bunch of different people to trust some, some something with. Like, why not not the guy that lost all the laptops? Like, right? Yeah. I don't blame him. Like, that's that's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You get one shot there, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You kind of do. A car rams into the Chinese consulate in San Francisco. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, KTVU, Fox 2, San Francisco, and BBC News. On Monday, San Francisco police shot and killed a man who crashed his car into the lobby of the Chinese consulate. Police say the crash happened at around 3.09 p.m. local time, when an unidentified suspect drove his car into the visa office of the Consulate General of the People's Republic of China. Witnesses say around 20 people were present, but no one besides the driver was injured. Police are coordinating with investigators from the U.S. State Department and the Chinese consulate, though as of Tuesday morning, the identity of the driver, the motive for the crash, and the details of the shooting are still not publicly known. The incident saw the consulate temporarily shutter parts of its office, with China lodging solemn representations to the U.S., urging authorities to make sure the matter is properly investigated. Monday's incident comes ahead of an Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit set to be held in San Francisco in November. The San Francisco consulate has seen similar incidents in the past with a man setting the main entrance of the building on fire in 2014. Those were the facts and here are the spins with a pro-establishment narrative from KTVU Fox. Although the details are yet to be fully released, the suspect seemingly set out to cause damage to the consulate's property and likely intended to cause grievous bodily injury to those inside. Luckily, local police were able to contain the situation and the U.S. is working quickly to deal with the incident and find answers regarding the motive and the identity of the suspect. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Global Times. While a swift investigation is a must, the San Francisco Chinese consulate's history of similar violent incidents calls into question the efficacy of the U.S. security. Rather than merely reacting to such incidents, the U.S. must take preventative measures to ensure the safety of its consulate staff before such occurrences tarnish U.S. diplomacy. Yeah, well, check, check the uh, trunk for laptops. That might... <laughs> I was told that my car was that they weren't going to look for it they Mm. it was gone and because oakland is a container city it was basically gone in 60 seconds like the car they said by the time we knew the car was gone the car was gone gone like on a on an actual slow boat to china like it's gone oh wow yeah um so they said like we're not looking for it here's a post-it note with your case number on it give that to your insurance company done like that's wow that was that was yeah it's gone. Yeah. So what if the, your car 
drove through a time portal, and then came out right in front of the Chinese consulate. I mean, it could be the car. I mean, like the, someone, it's a, was, it was a 98 Acura Integra. This was in 2007, so it wasn't as yeah. old. It was still an old car, but it was like a good car, a good old yeah. car. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, so it, this, it's conceivable this was the car. I'm looking forward to finding out more. A bunch of A's laptops were found at the scene. That would be something. <laughs> I often wonder where that car, I don't often wonder. Sometimes I wonder where that car is. Like what, because someone is it intentionally in stole it. Like it's yeah. someone's driving it. Like some in some way, shape, or form, somebody's driving that car somewhere. Yeah, well, it might be kaput oh, by now. Acura Integra could still be running. You know, that's that's, that's, that's a Honda. A, that's, yeah, that's, that's right. That's not just a Honda. That's a good Honda. You know, yeah, what I mean? it's a fancy Honda. Carrie Lake will announce her Senate run. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, ABC News, the Arizona Republic, Reuters, and the New York Times. On Tuesday night, Republican Carrie Lake, a former TV news anchor who lost the race for governor of Arizona last year, is expected to announce her run for U.S. Senate in that state. Lake, a staunch ally of former President Donald Trump, has frequently repeated his highly controversial claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen and declined to concede her defeat to Governor Katie Hobbs on similar claims. Lake last week filed paperwork to run for the seat currently held by independent Senator Kristen Sinema, a former Democrat. The GOP primary field currently also includes Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb. Sinema hasn't said if she will seek re-election, but Representative Ruben Gallego has announced his run for the Democratic nomination in a race that could shift the balance of the Senate majority that's currently 51 to 49 for the Democrats. Lake's expected announcement comes after she and Gallego last week were on the same plane and briefly sparred over the wall on the southern border, which will likely be a hot topic during the campaign. We have a Republican narrative from Town Hall. Lake is a candidate who could win this election based on name recognition alone after her storied career as a newscaster in Arizona. But she's more than just a popular figure. She stands up for what she believes in, as she showed during her interaction with Gallego and as the type of energy and presence that woos the public and racks up votes. Here's the Democratic narrative from Newsweek. Lake has already lost one statewide election, and voters are tired of her continuing to look back at the past rather than informing them on what she can do for them moving forward. She's a one-note candidate whose one-note election integrity has been thoroughly disproven. Republicans have no shot to win if they pick Lake as their nominee. Former MLB star Steve Garvey enters the California Senate race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, ABC7 Los Angeles, Fox News, CNN, ESPN, and NBC News. Former baseball star Steve Garvey announced Tuesday that he's running for California's vacant Senate seat to replace the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. Garvey is running as a Republican and hopes to be the first member of the GOP to win a Senate race in the state since 1988. Garvey, 74, announced his campaign launch in a video in which he heavily alluded to his career with the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres. In the video, Garvey said that he never played for Democrats or Republicans or Independents, saying he played for all of you. Despite queries from Republicans and Democrats, Garvey said he never considered running for office until now. 
He expressed his concerns about issues plaguing Californians, such as quality of life, crime, and education, and he also called out the impacts COVID policies had on children's education. Garvey has framed his run as a common-sense campaign, but he faces an uphill battle in a state that has overwhelmingly supported Democrats for nearly four decades. He has walked a tight line regarding his support for former President Donald Trump, saying he voted for him in the past, but has not decided on a preferred candidate in 2024. After Senator Feinstein died in late September, prominent Democrats such as Representatives Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, and Katie Porter have announced their candidacy. Acting Senator LaFonza Butler, whom Governor Gavin Newsom appointed to finish Feinstein's term, has not indicated whether or not she will run for a full six-year term. Despite the stark party disadvantage, Garvey's status as a former baseball most valuable player gives him star power that could elevate his candidacy. California has an open primary format that allows the top two vote-getters to advance, which could help Garvey given the crowded Democratic field. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Here are the narrative spins, beginning with a Republican narrative from OutKick. California has been driven into a state of disarray by years of inept Democratic leadership, and Steve Garvey is the perfect common-sense candidate to represent the state in the Senate and restore sanity. Garvey is extremely beloved in the Golden State for his contributions on the baseball diamond, and his character is as impeccable as his career was. It's time for a change in California, and if anyone can bring victory for the GOP in California, it's Garvey and his star power. And the LA Times counters with the Democratic narrative. While Steve Garvey may try to distance himself from Donald Trump and the extreme wing of the GOP, he in fact has a lot in common with other extremist candidates like Trump and former NFL star Herschel Walker. Garvey is trying to become the latest cult of personality that runs on a Republican platform of polarization. While California generally votes blue, Garvey's celebrity status makes him dangerous. In Hong Kong, flooding and rainfall continue from Typhoon Koinu's remnants. On Monday, Hong Kong saw heavy rainfall and high winds from the weakening Typhoon Koinu causing inundation of many areas. Just one month after the city's last devastating flood event. Some parts of the city saw more than 150 millimeters, or 5.9 inches of rainfall, forcing the shuttering of schools and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The storm also caused significant delays in transportation and stranded hundreds of travelers overnight at the Hong Kong airport. With ground transportation shut down, a rescue operation was launched to save a 16-year-old boy who attempted to walk home through a park in the nighttime hours. Sunday afternoon, as the storm began to weaken, the Hong Kong Observatory downgraded its alert level to number 8. With this level of warning, residents are asked to return or stay home, avoid flood-prone areas, and government-operated shelters are open for residents with no other safe place to go. Prior to reaching Hong Kong, Typhoon Koinu killed one person and injured at least 400 others in Taiwan. After passing roughly 70 kilometers east of Hong Kong, Typhoon Koinu continued its trajectory southwest toward China's Guangdong province. Bloomberg brings us Narrative A. While shattering records, extreme weather events consistently burden Hong Kong's residents with conditions they aren't equipped to handle. Long term, not only will deaths increase, but so will damage to infrastructure and the economy if Hong Kong's government doesn't begin to rapidly increase investments to mitigate these climate-catalyzed risks. 
And here's Narrative B from the Hong Kong Free Press. While Hong Kong is indeed facing weather-related problems, it's not too late to take action. Innovative city planning, carbon emissions reduction, and a combination of blue and green infrastructure is within the grasp of Hong Kong's capable and technically proficient bureaucracy. And finally, Claudia Golden wins the Nobel Prize in Economics. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, BBC News, Euronews, Reuters, CNN, and the Associated Press. On Monday, Harvard University professor Claudia Golden was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics for her research into the causes of wage and labor market inequality between men and women. After studying more than 200 years of U.S. data, Golden could successfully show that variations in education and job type historically accounted for much of the gender wage gap. Golden, the first woman to be granted tenure at Harvard's economics department, is only the third woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics and the first to receive it solo. According to the Nobel Committee, Golden could explain the shrinking gender gap in the 1980s as well as reveal the underlying factors and which barriers may need to be addressed in the future. While 50% of women participate in the labor market compared to 80% of men, they reportedly earn less and are less likely to shatter the glass ceiling. Last year, the Nobel Prize in Economics went to American economists Douglas W. Diamond and Philip Dibvig for their investigation into bank failure which reportedly influenced the U.S. reaction to the 07-08 Great Recession. Thanks, Scott, for the facts on that final story. And here's Narrative A from Harvard Gazette. Claudia Golden is a trailblazing economist whose most influential papers have concerned the history of women in their quest for career and family, co-education and higher studies, the impact of birth control pills on career and marriage decisions, surnames after marriage as a social indicator, and why women now comprise the majority of undergraduates. This well-deserved Nobel Award merits commendation. And Narrative B comes from the Wall Street Journal. While Golden's award deserves maximum recognition, it must be asked, why have so few women been awarded the Nobel Prize in economics, given that women make up half of humanity? The Nobel Prize is an outdated mode of scientific recognition that was historically, and remains, biased toward men, and those working in the Western world. It's time the Nobel is replaced entirely with an award that incentivizes cooperation and eliminates the bias against women. And the nerds have the final word today from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that an AI will have won the Nobel Prize by 2067 for the first time. I was listening to... Uh... Lex Friedman's interview with Walter Isaacson, the famous biographer, and uh, he wrote a book about Albert Einstein, and he said that uh, Albert Einstein wanted to get out of his first marriage, which was before he was famous, so bad that he said, so I wrote these papers that ended up being his famous relativity, relativity theories. I wrote these papers last year. They're going to win the Nobel Prize someday. If you will just divorce me right now and not make me pay anything, because he didn't have any money, he didn't have enough money to get divorced, uh, I'll give you the money that I get from the Nobel Prize when I get it. And she thought about it and took that bet, and then he won the Nobel Prize, and she got a million dollars. Wow. <laughs> wow. Is that for real? Pretty crazy. Yeah, that Walter, so the, the guy who wrote, wrote the book on Einstein said, yeah. Yep. Wow. They both knew. So he was Einstein a 
probably thought I'll be able to make by that time the million won't mean as much to me or I really want to get out of this marriage. I'm not sure which I'm not sure which um, either one. He was yeah. willing to take a bet. Yeah. 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 And and he and he paid like she got it. And apparently she bought a bunch of like apartment buildings in Zurich. She did very well with that million dollars. And that was a million dollars back her. when that was a million dollars. You know what I mean? That's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for her. She sounds like she invested it well. I I have a very strong feeling that Claudia Golden will invest her. I bet you if you did a study on which Nobel Prize prize money gets spent the wisest, I would imagine it's the economics one. You know. Yeah, that, that would make the most sense. Yeah, yeah, you would you would hope, right? That would actually be pretty interesting cuz obviously anyone who's ever wins a Nobel Prize is this, you know, radical thinker or great mind. What did they do? I'd like to know what each person did with their million dollars. Like yeah. what mundane thing, what interesting thing. That would actually I might win a Nobel Prize myself if I do that study. So Hey. There you go. The people want to know, Scott. <laughs> That's right. And then <laughs> then I'll my final act will be recording how I spend my million dollars. Yeah. Right. All on Lego toys at the airport. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topsher, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.